Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today, I want to start out by telling you that you have to, you have to get on my email list. And here's why. We have an amazing opportunity coming up actually later this week. And in fact, depending on when you listen to this, there might already be a breaking news podcast to explain a little bit more. I hate to be cryptic, but it's a little bit top secret right now. But it's an amazing opportunity that someone very well known is giving to our audience. And let's just say this guy is probably, you know, put at least half million dollars in my pocket in the last three to four years. And I'm not kidding. But in order for me to send you a link to this incredibly generous offer, I have to have your email. So you got to get on my list one way or another. So go to wealthformula.com now and sign up for either the weekly wealth widget or my book or order George's book or whatever. But get on the list. Now, if you're not near a computer and you're concerned you're going to forget, you can text me at 44222 and just type wealth formula one word, and you'll get a copy of my book. You'll end up on the list and you will get this opportunity later on this week for that link and all the opportunities that's there. It's really just an amazing offer from this person. So I really want to urge you to do that. Again, that's 44222 and type wealth formula, one word. Now, remember, it's one word. Don't let the autocorrect screw you up because I got some emails telling me it didn't work. And as it turned out, it was just the autocorrect turning it into two words. All right. So 44222 type wealth formula. Don't miss the opportunity, folks. It's huge. Any of you have been watching these webinars that we're doing, you know, and some of them have been through Investor Club, but some of them have been going out to all of you. I hope you understand the level of value that you're getting here. You know, a lot of free information and, and really you owe it yourself to really listen to this stuff and, and, and take it in. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm providing a lot of stuff for you, but you got to actually take some time to go through it. So let's talk about today's topic. So, 
You know, I used to be a neurosurgery resident, right? So neurosurgery is you know, surgery of the brain and spine, the central nervous system. And I did that at least for a couple of years before I realized that, you know, brain surgery did not really suit my lifestyle. Actually, brain surgery was not really compatible with having a lifestyle at all. And that was problematic for me. I can't say enough about my colleagues who stayed in and that's what they do. They are people who deserve every penny they make and they are martyrs, you know? I mean, it's just, it's amazing. They're just, they go out there and take one for the team and keep people alive and sacrifice their own lives. You know, it's, it's really, they're amazing people. Anyway, it wasn't for me though, because I'm not really willing to give up my own life, you know, just to, to you know, help other people's. Maybe it sounds small, but it just, it's, it wasn't for me. I just, you know, I want to spend time with my kids and all that stuff. So anyway, I moved on, but I sure did love neuroscience in the brain. I still think it's absolutely fascinating. It's the most interesting thing to me. And it was something I did a lot of research in, et cetera. I saw interesting things though. You got, I got to learn along the way. I mean, when you operate on the brain, when you're literally, you know, looking down at the brain and you're, cutting at it, it gives you a little bit different perspective on what it is to be alive. As you can imagine, you realize how life is indeed quite fragile and and you wonder how most of us make it as far as we do. You also start to see how all of our thoughts and movements are, uh, in the end, they're all pretty mechanical in nature and driven by electrical impulses. And it's actually kind of a depressing way to look at it and, and see it. But, uh, but there, unfortunately, it is true. And nowhere is it more clear during awake brain surgery. I'm sure some of you have uh, seen TV shows about this and stuff. But sometimes with brain tumors that are near important centers of the brain, like speech or vision or whatever, it's important to stimulate the brain around the area to try to do your best and not to cut out those parts of the brain while you're cutting out tumors. For example, you know, stimulation near a vision center may cause some sort of visual hallucination. So, you know, avoid it if possible. Anyway, freaky, right? All this electrical activity happens as we develop and in many cases is learned. There are these reinforced electrical impulses that get stronger and stronger. And that's basically what learning is. Electrical pathways strengthen with certain behaviors. An example is when a right-handed person breaks their fingers and needs to use his or her left hand for a while, you can actually see brain activity change through modern imaging and PET scans, etc. Other activity is less learned and, and more primordial. For example, your pupils dilate when you run away from a tiger, right? I mean, that's not learned. It's just innate, and so is perspiration. And Ultimately, we are the product of innate and learned behaviors. And to a certain degree, everything we do and think is based on some sort of reflex. The way we behave in personal finance actually is no different. And that's what brings me to today's show, because I'm really fascinated by this topic of how our surroundings, our education, our learned behaviors, our innate behaviors, how they end up making us make the decisions that we do in personal finance. So my guest today actually wrote a book on this topic, and it's pretty fascinating, and it relates human behavior and personal finance. So when we come back, uh, we will talk with the author, Mr. John Howe. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is John Howe. Now, he's a professor and chairman of the finance department at the University of Missouri and Missouri Bankers Chair. He's also a chartered financial analyst and a governance fellow of the National Association of Corporate Directors. He has won numerous teaching awards, including the William T. Kemper Fellow for Excellence in Teaching. In addition to all of this, John is the author of The Foolish Corner, Avoiding Mind Traps and Personal Financial Decisions, which I found fascinating. Welcome, John. Well, thank you. A pleasure to be here. Let's start out by talking about The Foolish Corner and what led you to write this book in the first place and sort of just give us a little bit of context. Well, sure. First of all, the title is not completely self-explanatory, but the quote comes from Aristotle and it says, there is a foolish corner in the brain of the wisest man, which simply suggests that all of us, no matter how bright we are, do have certain weaknesses that we need to pay attention to. And I think it was basically my 30 plus years of teaching finance and seeing the mistakes that people made that inspired me to write the book. So I want to jump into some of the concepts specifically that I think relate to a lot of the things that we sort of talk about on this show. The first one you talk about is the hedonic treadmill. So what is that all about? Well, that has to do with how you think about yourself and and specifically who you compare yourself to. So if we think, for example, about a very successful professional, a high paid, maybe a physician, for example, the frame of reference here is very important because they can compare themselves to their neighbors who might be making a little bit more money or might have a slightly bigger car or bigger swimming pool. But the, the perspective is important to realize, for example, that if If you're a highly paid professional, you make more money, actually, than almost everybody in the world, for example. So it's a question of to whom you compare yourself, because it's easy to become disgruntled. And this refers to the treadmill part of it, where you're just kind of always running but never feeling much better about yourself, because there's always someone who's making a little bit more money or has a bigger swimming pool or whatever. So I think it's important to think about putting yourself in the right context. Right. When I read about the hedonic treadmill concept, It reminded me a little bit of what we refer to on this show as the golden handcuffs also, which is this idea that, you know, people start up particularly, let's just take an example of physicians like myself. You know, we start out in residency making uh, pretty much nothing. Uh, You know, I was in San Francisco making, you know, $50,000 a year, which, (laughs) you know, know, is not that very much money in 2008, 2009. But, you know, and I went from that to making, you know, a lot more than that in very short period of time after training. And the one thing I always wondered was, how come I don't feel rich, right? I mean, I didn't feel that poor when I was making 50. Well, I did feel a little bit poor, but I didn't have stuff. But what happened is that eventually, like you said, you buy a big house, you've got cars, you live in a nice neighborhood, you get a country gun. Before you know it, you're wondering why you don't have any money. And then you look around at everyone else and you think, gosh, dude, I mean, I wish I had money like them, right? I mean, so is that sort of that part of that concept? Yeah, I think there are two things going on here, and you pointed both of them out. One of us is the notion that we habituate or kind of acclimate to what we have. So when we first buy that big house or the big car, it's a, it's a big thrill to us. But I think all of us have experienced, you know, the, the fact that that thrill wears off over time. And the car just becomes your car and the house just becomes your house. And so that's one part of the hedonic treadmill. And the other factor, which you point out in your book, which I very much enjoyed, is the fact that when people come into money, they tend to maybe spend it all. So one of the reasons that people don't have any money is that they're not doing any savings. You know, for example, in your book, you talk about investing in real estate. Well, generally, 
you'd like to have a little money to put down, probably don't want to go with 100% leverage. We could talk about that if you want. But the trouble is that big house and that big car are taking up all your disposable income. And I think in the case of physicians, it's understandable. They've gone through this long period of kind of financial deprivation. And then they come, you know, like you said, uh, in your case, you jump to a very large salary and you think, well, now I deserve the rewards of all my hard work and end up spending it all and, and not having any money to invest. Right. And that's a big trap. And one of the things that I sometimes point out to people is if you look at some of the people that we talk about on this show, um, for example, Robert Kiyosaki, I, I think, has pointed this out a few times. And I think it's a very interesting concept that a lot of times the wealthy look at raising their lifestyles according to what their residual income starts becoming. I mean, as the investments start paying off, they increase that lifestyle. So rather than necessarily going out and taking that $100,000 and buying a you know super fancy car, they might put it in an investment that yields you know uh, a certain amount of money per month that helps buy that without trapping them. So it's a different ways of thinking. I think we're in agreement a little bit about the whole idea of adapting to the amount of money you make. It's a big problem. So let's talk about another concept, which again, we talk about it sort of in different terms a little bit here. We use different terms, but you call it the money illusion. So tell us about that. Well, that has to do with, there are several forms of it, but the most basic one is the notion of inflation. And I know from reading some of your materials that you expect inflation to kick up fairly significantly here. And I agree with you, given the fairly loose monetary policy we've had over recent years. So the notion here is that we pay attention to prices, what economists call nominal prices, which are the prices we see in the market. But the illusion is not adjusting for inflation. So, for example, if you buy an investment and let's say $100, just to keep the the math simple, and it goes up in value by 5% in a year to $105. But if there's been 5% inflation over that same year, your actual purchasing power, the ability to buy goods and services hasn't changed. But a lot of people focus on that change from 100 to 105, and that would be called the nominal change in price. And they tend to believe it's real. But what's important is what's real is what you can buy in terms of goods and services. And in this simple example that I constructed, you can't buy any more at the end of the year than you could at the beginning of the year. And so that's the most prominent form of the money illusion. So one of the ideas that I think is really important about the money illusion, in my view at least, is that sometimes I think people get the sense that keeping money in in the bank in the form of cash or in money markets, things that are yielding less than 1% somehow is safe and that investing in assets is more risky. But the reality is that if you put this in context and think that your money in the bank is actually losing money every month, well, that certainly makes investing sound a lot less risky, right? Because at that point, and I think that's kind of what you're getting at a little bit with the money illusion as well, is that this idea that somehow if you're keeping your money around doing nothing, that it's going to keep its value. It's not. Absolutely right. I mean, we're exactly on the same page here. So for your example of savings, I think this is in your book as well. You know, if you're lucky enough to be making 1% these days, but inflation is running at 2%, yes, the nominal balance in your savings account or your checking account is going up, but your purchasing power, your ability to actually buy things is going down. Essentially, we can say that inflation is a form of risk. So even though it looks safe in terms of the nominal amounts, 
because there are some FDIC guarantees in bank accounts. It looks safe, but in fact, in terms of your purchasing power, it is not a safe investment. So what is, in your view, I know we're coming from a little bit different approach and you're sort of more traditional in, in your view, what's a safer, relatively safer investment that yields you something more than inflation? I do think your approach that you describe in your book is a fairly nice one in the sense of owning tangible assets that have predictable cash flows. And predictable, of course, is the tricky part of that. But if you have, let's say, a property where there's a long history of rentals and tenants that pay and so forth, those can be relatively safe and be expected to beat the 1% that you might get in your savings account. And circling back to the money illusion as well, real estate often is a good hedge against inflation. That is, the values of real estate often keep up with or more than keep up with the rate of inflation. So I think those tend to be relatively low risk. I wouldn't want to say no risk. Anybody that was flipping condos in South Florida in 2007 is maybe still trying to recover. But if you choose your properties or your other tangible assets wisely, I think that's a very important, what we call asset class, a very important part of your investment portfolio. What about equity markets? I think equity markets make sense if you have a very long time horizon. But I'm talking maybe now to a group of people who are in their, say, 20s or maybe early 30s. I think it's a bit better than a casino because the casinos have got the game rigged so that they're going to win in the long run. And in the long run, equity markets do average a positive return, even after adjusting for inflation. But as you point out in the book, there's some very dramatic fluctuations. For those of us, you're probably too young to remember this, Buck. But anyway, in October 1987, the market was down 23% in one day. And as your book points out, of course, late 2007, 2008, there was a very substantial beating. And I think you mentioned the dot-com bubble in the 2000, 2001. So a lot of people don't have the taste for that kind of volatility, that kind of fluctuation in value. And I think for those people that are willing to take the long view, who might be looking at a 20 or 30 year retirement, I think the equity markets do have a role as another asset class, but not as only asset class. Sure, sure. That's fair. I think certainly a number of people in the audience have that I actually am not in the equity markets. And and a lot of that for me is an issue of control. I mean, I think of Tom Wheelwright talks about this a little bit in terms of feeling the difference between uh, systemic risk and then localized risk. You know, when I have a property and, and typically I don't do single family homes, I try to scale, I do larger investments, but having more of those that creates a certain, there is obviously risk with it, but it's a more localized risk and it's a controllable risk. The thing that I think that a lot of us have issues with, with regard to the equity markets and in some cases, massive fluctuations is that we really don't have any control and uh, we're at the mercy of Wall Street. And and to me, that is what, you know, Tom Wheelwright would call systemic risk, which is you've got money there and, and uh, you've got no control and all the markets sort of crashes on you. But let's talk a little bit about another concept, which, again, I think is really appropriate for my listeners again, and it's herd behavior. Yeah, herd behavior, the, the name is fairly suggestive, I hope, and that is that... Yeah. Uh, we, as investors, we often, without really thinking about it, tend to go along with the crowd, so to speak, that we tend to do what other people are doing. Partly, there's a social phenomenon here. You're at a cocktail party and someone's investing in some kind of asset. But I think the idea here is that there's a certain level of psychological comfort 
doing what others are doing. And so it, it kind of reinforces, oh, I think, you know, I've, all these other smart people are doing this, so it makes sense for me to do it. So again, if you think about a herd of investors, at least in a figurative sense, they kind of move in the same direction. And it takes a little more independent thinking, a little bit more bravery, so to speak, to move, to step away from the herd and say, you know, I think these people, you know, who are flipping condos in South Florida are maybe don't understand the risk and I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to find something that's more appropriate for my risk tolerance. The other phrase that's kind of relevant here is groupthink, which is a phrase many of us have heard. And it's a tendency for us just to take cues from other people about what the right thing is to do rather than thinking for ourselves about what is best for us. Right, right. Just for clarity, I do not advocate flipping condos in in South Florida or anywhere else. I don't advocate for flipping anywhere. We invest, we don't flip. So the totally different deal here. But at any rate, let's let's talk about it because that's I think it's an important point. And I talk about this in the context of people. Let's go back to my colleagues in medicine, people coming out and all of a sudden they're going from making fifty thousand dollars a year to three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, whatever. What happens is what you talk about in terms of the herd behavior is that, you know, we come out and a lot of times we've got our heads in the books and we're not savvy investors. We haven't been studying the equity markets or finance at all. And we come out and what ends up happening is we do what everybody else tells us we're supposed to do. It's conventional wisdom. And herd behavior in this situation to me is what a majority of the country does or high paid professionals do, which is just hand their money over to somebody else to manage it without thinking. That's something that I've strongly advocated against. I think that that's, in my view, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I think the herd behavior is rooted almost so deeply sometimes. It's it's akin to religion, right? I've had some of my folks in, in my investor group tell me, you know, everything makes sense. You know, listen, I love this idea. I think it makes so much sense, the clarity and the investment. And I like the way we're thinking about it, but I can't help but feel guilty that I'm doing this, right? They feel guilty because they feel like they're doing something wrong. Their family's telling them they're doing something wrong. What are you doing that's super risky, right? And for me, my context is very different. My dad's a real estate investor. The only time he invests in the stock market, he got, he got killed. So for me, investing that way is different. It's scary. And investing in real estate and that sort of thing is actually conservative. So again, it goes back to your point, right? It it is herd behavior. And sometimes it's more than herd behavior, though. It's actually a belief system. And that becomes very complex, an amalgam of religion or where you grew up, your culture and and even your, you know, just your family. You know, I suspect, too, it it, I can't prove this, but I suspect it probably has roots in in our evolution where, you know, back in the really tough days, we had to be a part of a functioning community in order to survive. And so we do kind of feel these social connections are important. So I think it's probably all the things that you mentioned, you know, kind of the religion and other things. But I think it also probably has some roots in our evolution over time and that, that hasn't kind of caught up with modern times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's true. And and obviously, you know, when I talk about religion, I mean, I think the best example for me is if you look at the Rothschild family, right? A Jewish family back when the church had prohibited Christians to uh, be in the banking business because of usury. And the next thing you know, it sort of opens up this opportunity for a Jewish family to become the bankers of the world. So I'm just so fascinated by the complexity of why people end up where they are and different reasons for becoming entrepreneurs, becoming wealthy or becoming poor. Right, right. 
You mentioned the word entrepreneur. If I could take off from there. Sure. Real estate investors are entrepreneurs, at least in my mind. And I do have a chapter in my book about overconfidence versus optimism. Optimism what drives entrepreneurship. And so it's a great driver of economic growth and so forth. And so optimism, I think, is probably a characteristic of, of many of your listeners and readers. Overconfidence is something that you might want to guard against. And there are a variety of ways of doing that. And, and part of it really is imagining yourself stepping out away from the herd to come back to that idea. Right. Maybe having in, in the book I advocate, can you find someone who will play devil's advocate? So you're thinking about a particular syndication, for example, you might say, well, you might have someone say, or you could do it to yourself, but you know, you can say, you know, what might go wrong with this? What drives the economy in this region? And what could go wrong with the economy and so forth. So I think being, I think confidence is important. I think optimism is important. I think as human beings, we need to be on guard against overconfidence. And I think there are a variety of ways that we can actively deal with that. Yeah. And I think the challenge to some of what you're saying is that you talk about herd behavior and sometimes how that can really hurt people. The challenge is that when you have a full-time job, my neighbor's a neurosurgeon and, you know, I started out as a neurosurgeon and I didn't want to do it. I didn't like the hours. He's never home, right? And he's working 60 hours a week. He's making a lot of money. But how does that guy step out of the herd when it comes to his own finances? That's a challenge, right? So, <laughs> so my view is actually somewhat to the contrary of yours, which is that I don't think that all herds are bad. I think the key is to find the herd that you belong in and that you can trust, because I can tell you from my own personal experience that it gets an N of one. So I can't say it's the <laughs> law, but what I've done over the years, and it hasn't been long, it's seven or eight years. You know, I took a few lumps and bruises at the beginning investing with people, but then I found my own tribe, right? I found my own people that I felt like I was safe, fairly safe. And I'll use that in quotes. But if I invested within this network, right, and I found that to be quite true because, you know, there is some benefits to that social network as well. If there's people in there that are sponsoring deals and doing stuff within those networks, there's a little bit more responsibility from the sponsor end because it becomes a community thing. And if something goes wrong and everybody hears about it and it, it sort of keeps everybody honest. So that's sort of the other side of the coin when it comes to at least in the, in a micro sense of herd behavior. Well, Buck, I really like the terminology you've created here. So if we could, I mean, just for our purposes, we sure. think about herd as being kind of a mindless following and tribe. I like the word tribe here in terms of this is where kind of people feel responsibility to one another. And that is a way of enforcing kind of good behavior. As you say in your book, Wall Street never signed a Hippocratic Oath. You know, your tribe's not going to explicitly sign one, but they've kind of got that social obligation and bond that would dictate that they would behave well with regard to other members of their tribe. So I like that. And I also liked, if I could just read one sentence from your book, which resonates with what you're saying here is, what you will find is that certain approaches to investing will philosophically resonate with you more than others. So I think part of the tribal thing, to use our new terminology, is finding people that have a similar philosophy of investing. Right. And I think that can make for a very successful tribe or group of decision making. Well, I appreciate the plug, even though the book is for free anyway. I do have an accredited investor club. And that's basically a, the idea 
is we look at things together and we talk about them and we approach them and no one's forced to do anything. But I think it's a different way to look at it. And if people feel comfortable with that, then, you know, they have others who can reinforce, you know, things that they're thinking or, or see different perspectives. But anyway, listen, this has been um, really fun for me, at least, uh, hopefully for you. <laughs> Where do we get the book, John? The book, again, let me just say the title. The Foolish Corner, Avoiding Mind Traps in Personal Financial Decisions. Thank you for asking. It's available on Amazon, both a print-on-demand and Kindle, and then it's available in ebook form at Barnes & Noble. Fantastic. And is there anywhere else that we can learn more about your work? I do have a website for the book, and you can contact me through that, and the website is knowthybiasedself.com. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, John. Buck, thanks very much. My pleasure. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Fascinating stuff, right? You know, I love this kind of stuff because it essentially reinforces what we're doing here and the mission at WealthFormula.com and WealthFormula Podcast. We are building a tribe, and those of you in Investor Club are experiencing that probably more than the rest of you, but pretty soon we'll have other ways to get everyone else involved too. Now, I do want to just use this time as a reminder, as I said at the beginning of this show, if you're not on my email list yet, make sure you get on right now. Either go to wealthformula.com and sign up for the weekly wealth widget or download the book, whatever, whatever you do, you're going to end up on the list. Or stop what you're doing right now and text 44222 and write Wealth Formula. That's just one word. And if it autocorrects, make sure you take out the space 44222 and type Wealth Formula. Now, I'm telling you to do this because there's a great opportunity that I'm going to send out to everybody on my list later on this week. And I don't want you to miss it. And this is something that's fairly exclusive that we are getting a link to from somebody that you will know who they are. It's a very, very well-known person. Not trying to be cryptic here. It's just I was asked to keep it somewhat of a secret. So at any rate, make sure you go to 44222 and uh, type Wealth Formula or go to wealthformula.com and get on the list. That's your homework. Do it. Don't miss out. And that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Until next week, this is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. 
I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.